Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, I have the distinct pleasure of today speaking with uh, Dr. Rick Rapetti, who is Professor of Philosophy at the City, uh, at the City University of New York. Um, we're speaking about a fascinating far-ranging Rutledge publication. It's the Rutledge Handbook on the Philosophy of Meditation. Um, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rosh. Great to be here. Now, this is, uh, to my mind, a timely uh, contribution, uh, given all of the iterations and interest in uh, what we might think of as meditation. I'm wondering, what's the sort of backstory or impetus or genesis of this project? Sure. Um, That's uh, an interesting, uh, complicated, deep story, but I'll try to... Excellent. As a a scholar of Puranas, I love backstories, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I'll try to sketch it out. So I I stumbled upon meditation by accident when I was a teenager. I was literally flipping through channels on television, and I saw two beautiful women in leotards in yoga poses. That caught my 15-year-old boy's eye. Uh, but I started following along the class. And when it was over, the uh, instructor had us in deep relaxation. And I had a kind of mystical experience that just sold me on yoga and meditation. I went out and taught myself, got every book I could. Within a matter of months, I found a few really good meditation teachers. And that's been like the most definitive philosophical thing going on in my life. It, uh, I had a lot of mystical experiences in the first few years of my practice that just kind of blew my mind about metaphysics, like what's reality? Like some of those experiences just didn't fit. And that's what led me into academic philosophy. I, you know, sort of thought that that would help me figure it all out. But when I got my training in, Adel- in uh, when I, you know, went to college for philosophy, I wound up in a department that was totally analytic in focus. And same thing in grad school, the department was totally analytic, and there was almost no mention whatsoever of things like meditation or Asian philosophy at the time. So, but I wound up sticking with philosophy and, um, you know, my interest was still driven by my personal meditation experiences and practices and all of that. And so my, my dissertation was on metacognition and agency which and metacognition was a kind of respectable Western analytic term for practices that include meditation. <laughs> but my, uh, my advisors on my dissertation encouraged me to put any references to Buddhism and the like in the footnotes and keep them out of the body of the text. All right, so I did. And then, uh, you know, after I got my, you know, my degree and I got hired in a, in a department that didn't care what I published on, I started diving more academically and scholarly into Buddhism and things like that and started publishing on Buddhism and meditation and free will. My dissertation was agency is another word for free will. So that's what most of my publications were about. But they're kind of uh, like restricted to 
journals like the Journal of Buddhist Ethics, Philosophy East and West, all this comparative stuff, but still not so recognized in straightforward Western analytic philosophy. So, you know, I've got a few books on the topic that, like I said, were more like in the zone of Buddhist studies and things like that. But finally, I just thought I need to do something to bring this topic, the philosophy of meditation, into recognition in the world of Western analytic philosophy. So that's what motivated this book. Um, you know, I've published a few books before with Rutledge, but this is the first one that's explicitly on this field, the philosophy of meditation. Now, as you probably know, there's been a philosophy of meditation in Asian philosophy for thousands of years, even if it's not called that, it's certainly there. Um, there's been certainly elements of philosophy of meditation, although also not called that, in Western like uh, theology and mysticism. But those areas are, have not traditionally been recognized by Western analytic philosophers in the last hundred, you know, a few hundred years since the Enlightenment era. So I'm really trying in this book to just bring this topic into recognition as a field of study for Western philosophers. That was my primary motivation, because I didn't get that when I studied philosophy in the West. Uh, you know, this is what I was looking for. They didn't have it. I'm bringing it there now. That's my motive. <laughs> yeah, I, f I find this fascinating. Um, um, I did fairly well in school. My interests were always a bit more towards the humanities, for sure. Um, so I started off with an English literature major, uh, uh, philosophy and history minors. After a couple of years of that, for a variety of reasons, I left. But one of the things I learned about philosophy, uh, fascinating courses on a variety of topics, no doubt. <laughs> but uh, after a certain point, um, uh, it, it really wasn't feeding me. It wasn't feeding my quest for who are we, why are we here? You know, so on, on, on some level, um, I could only find that a couple of years later after returning to school, I discovered the discipline of religious studies, which I didn't even know was a discipline until, uh, until my mid twenties. And I took an intro Hinduism course and, and wherein I could engage literature and history and philosophy um, and somehow less divorced from what you might describe as spirituality or uh, mystical experiences. And so I really find your journey fascinating. Certainly, <laughs> this sort of inquiry would have been very much of interest to my um, um, <laughs> my undergrad self and may have even <laughs> kept me in philosophy. Who knows? Um, I want to say a word about um, how the book's structured. What, what are the sections? Yeah, so even before I explain that, a kind of preamble to that or a context or background for that is, if you don't mind. Um, Absolutely. Years, Go ahead. About 10 years ago or so, maybe even a few years more, I tried to put this book together and I reached out to maybe 30 some odd people who I knew had some interest in it, maybe a philosopher who I knew was into meditation or who had written maybe mentioned something about it in passing in some article or whatever. So like I was scouring the, the world of my contacts to get people who I knew were interested in these things and invited them with a book proposal on this very topic, you know, uh, over a decade ago. But many of them, most of them, if not all of them said, great idea, 
but I'm too busy or, uh, you know, not sure about it. And even the publisher was a little, the publisher I was talking at the time, wasn't sure that the, the topic was ready or ripe. No, despite the fact that meditation is worldwide phenomenon now, and it's in psychology and medicine and in the boardroom and everywhere, and everybody has meditation, you know, going on, like, and people walking around every city, there's as many yoga studios as there are Starbucks, um, you know, but philosophers were not really uh, ready to, to speak about this. But now when I tried this two years ago to start this project up again, I thought, okay, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it was ripe, but I invited like, because 30 people had turned me down. So I invited about 60 people this time, but I got almost 30 yeses. So it's like, oh my goodness. Uh, uh, and I thought Rutledge was, you know, I had run the idea by them. They liked it. But the last Rutledge edited book that I put together, Collection, only had about 16 or 17 contributions in it. I thought, this is way too many. So I spoke to the editor. I said, look, I've got this wonderful lineup of all these people who are willing to write these chapters. Um, can we make two volumes? Uh, and they were like, no, no, we've got this new thing that we've been doing called handbooks. They're more comprehensive. You could have up to like almost 30 chapters. I said, oh, this is great. So now I just had all these different people and I had to figure out how to sort them out, right? So, you know, how do I organize them? Should I organize it historically? Should I organize it by, I wasn't quite sure. So I just had to kind of look at all the submissions that I got and try to sort them out into categories. And the categories are a little overlapping. Like It might be like one chapter might've been primarily about ethics, but there was certainly a good deal of metaphysics being mentioned in there. Uh, that's just an example of two different categories. I had to kind of make somewhat arbitrary categorizations of the chapters. All right. So then, so that's the general background. And so the, the, the categorizations, let me just get to my table of contents, the way that I wound up sorting them out. And this is just, like I said, accident of who said they were willing to write a chapter. So my, I've got like five parts, I believe. Uh, let me see. Double check. Indeed. Six parts. Six parts. Six, six parts, parts. 26 chapters. So part one is just more introductory stuff. And that the, the category for part one is meditation and philosophy. All right. So that's just chapters that are addressing most general features of is meditation a form of philosophy? How does meditation relate to philosophy? Is there are they alike? Are they different? You know, can they, you know, can they be related? Should they be related? Uh, positive and negative attitudes. Um, that's part one. Part two was chapters that I thought were more about epistemology, like whether or not meditation can serve as some form or type or expression of or be absorbed in med uh, uh, epistemology. So, you know, what kind of cognitive value does meditation have? Does it, is there any, what, what about evidence from meditation, that sort of thing? So part two is meditation and epistemology. Part three, similarly, is meditation and metaphysics, chapters that are more primarily about metaphysics. You know, epistemology is about knowledge. Metaphysics is about the nature of reality. So, you know, like um, there's like the first chapter in there is about whether or not meditation um, establishes that there's no self, <laughs> right, for example. And whether or not there's a self, that's a, a straightforward metaphysical question. Um, 
The next part, that was part three. Part four is meditation and values. So one of the chapters in there is about um, meditation as a kind of path toward the good life, right? And the good life is, you know, how should we live? So that's an ethical question. Another chapter is about um, certain kinds of norms that are built into meditative paths, like a, a kind of mindfulness or a kind of global attentiveness, that sort of thing. Um, so as a value that could kind of help us in the world of ethics. Part five is all about phenomenology. Phenomenology is a kind of philosophical tradition in continental or European philosophy, which um, is a particular philosophical method where you kind of try to look at what's given in experience, what's built into experience, bracketing out all metaphysical interpretations and assumptions, right? So like, if you look at the, the, the things behind me right now, you'll see black and white colors on one side of me and red and orange and whatever colors on the other side of me, right? You bracket out that those are paintings, right? You bracket out interpretations, just look at what's given. So, so there's a similarity between many meditative practices and phenomenological practices. So that's what part five is all about. And then meditate, uh, sorry, part six, which is the last one, is just looking at some traditions uh, around the world um, that, um, two, two in particular, the Greco-Roman, so in ancient Stoics, for example, uh, were interested in meditation, and then in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and that could or would or should have been the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, but I couldn't find anybody uh, when I was inviting people who was willing to, uh, to write on the Islamic part. But th so that, that's the six parts. So quick recap. The first one was meditation and philosophy. Second, meditation and epistemology. What do we know? How do we know it? Third, meditation and metaphysics. What does meditation have to do with our understanding of ultimate reality? What's real, what's not? Part four, meditation and values and ethics, right? Meditative, most meditative paths have a very powerful ethical component. Part five is about meditation and phenomenology. And phenomenology, I should add, is a very uh, well-recognized discipline within philosophy in the West, European, but still. And so by just comparing the two, this is a way for showing Western philosophers that meditation is valid. Uh, because it's very similar to phenomenology, not necessarily identical. And then the last one was just looking at some meditative traditions in Western history, Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman. So that's the, that's the general. Uh, Thank you. So 30,000, first of all, um, good on you for wearing down uh, 26 people to the point of saying yes, excellent. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to fit it into the handbook format, which I think I think actually quite befits the sort of topic um, at hand. Um, aside from part six, then, what, um, 30,000 of a few, what, what religious traditions do you, you primarily draw on, do the authors primarily draw on in the first five parts? Yeah, most of the authors, of course, draw on Asian philosophy in general. Um, but I would say um, mostly Buddhist, and then secondarily Hindu or Vedanta, that sort of thing, with a little bit of Taoism uh, here and there. <laughs> yeah, it's part of 
I mean, I do, I do podcasts for a larger audience in Indian religions, but part of the real, the interest in, in this was the, the heavy uh, religions of Indic origin, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, very much so. Um, um, I mean, for those listening in the audience, I mean, this podcast will be cross-posted to a number of audiences, um, I imagine, but for those of you um, avid Indian religions listeners, there is a chapter on Advaita Vedanta, there's a chapter on uh, Yogacara, there's a chapter on Anatma, and there's um, etc. There's lots and lots of uh, fascinating topics. The table of contents is available at the Relic site, so feel free to check it out. Uh, the link will be in the podcast notes. Um, so let's, uh, uh, since there are so many chapters and we probably would have need a two hour <laughs> podcast <laughs> to engage them all. Let's talk a little bit more uh, broadly about who would you say this book is for? You said something interesting um, toward the end of your last comment about the demonstration of the merits of meditation or and or the study of meditation for philosophers. Could you say a little bit more about that and maybe talk, uh, weave that into, you know, who's this book for really? Yeah, well, it's primary, my primary audience, the people that motivated me primarily to write the book um, are those particularly, not only philosophers, not only Western philosophers, but Western analytic philosophers. Those are the people who were my mentors and teachers um, and credential givers throughout my philosophical education, my formal education. And many of them, if not most of them, just had no idea that there's a wealth of philosophical wisdom in Asian philosophy, first of all, and then more specifically in like the meditative or contemplative paths that are kind of at the core of most Asian philosophical traditions. So this was, you know, my primary motive was to show them the value of these traditions. But there are also chapters in here by cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. uh, And of course, those are there also to show that even though historically meditation is kind of like a premier in Asian philosophy, it need not be Uh, restricted to Asian philosophy. You don't need to become an Asian philosopher to study these things. And uh, cognitive scientists and neuroscientists are studying meditation. And and some of those people are also philosophers. So that's the primary target for me. But anybody who's interested in, here's the thing, like I think I mentioned earlier, meditation has got millions of people outside of the Indic world practicing meditation in the last 20 years or so. Um, so there, and, and medicine, you know, psychology, wellness, positive psychology, you know, even in terms of improving business practices and, you know, whatever. So like it's all over Western culture. It's been completely absorbed, but not in the philosophical domain of Western culture. Right. So, and then, so, and there were also, you know, like millions of these practitioners who are just kind of taking over the practice, right, because of mindfulness apps and things like that, they don't really know how rich the philosophy in which meditation is embedded can be. So this is also for those people. 
Um, although this is a scholarly book, so the average person might not get their hands on it, it's there for anybody. Uh, uh, and I'm also, like I said, I'm trying to just kind of groundbreakingly open up and create a recognized topic, the philosophy of meditation in the West. We've got, you know, medicinal and well-being oriented and various other aspects of meditation, but very little about the philosophy of it in the West, except for what tidbits come through in a yoga class or something like that. Um, so on the one hand, my primary target is, once again, analytic philosophers, because those were my people who trained me and I want them to know about this. But then anybody else who's interested in meditation, you know, they're kind of maybe missing out on the larger philosophical context and all the possible philosophical dimensions and even the scientific aspects of it. So the, the philosophical understanding of the neuroscience of meditation, because there's a lot of hyperbole also, I'm sure you've come across about how, you know, meditation is good for this, it's good for that. And a lot of those things are not really scientifically properly interpreted, so to speak. Well, there's there's certainly, in my my own personal perspective, a conflation between um, uh, the mystical, the spiritual, and pseudoscience. I mean, for a science, for a scientific question, one requires a scientific methodology inquiry uh, for, for for a question born of empiricism. But that doesn't necessarily. But that's not to say that human experience is necessarily confined to the material, and that's not to say that we can't talk about these things in meaningful ways. And uh, so it's it's either you know. Uh, the extreme of well, this is all imagined, or you know, this will cure your dog too. Everything you have and your dog, just do this for, for five minutes a day. And so, yeah, there there needs to be a space um, which in where one is mindful to attentive of where there is space for um, uh, the scholarly impulse um, um, somehow dovetailed with rubbing against the experiential impulse. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, in, in my in my view, they can often be elided or conflated, and uh, it's probably you know division. Uh, good good fences make good neighbors at times, but nevertheless, I mean, um, there are without question folks engaging. Med- med- uh, let me let me use yoga as an example. I did not begin to think I would be involved in the yoga community in the West. My training is in Sanskrit narrative. My spiritual training is in a number of, of, of texts, um, philosophical texts, um, narrative texts. And there are so many people in the online school that I run and elsewhere who are interested in and teaching yoga and really have little clue about the philosophy or, or, or the narrative or the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the soil, the soil, right? Uh, of the tradition. And I think uh, it's important for folks to become aware of that if they fancy themselves serious, you know, and as you say, this is an academic book. So, you know, <laughs> the average individual uh, may, may not be interested in it. However, apparently, alarmingly, there are a, a, a great number of people who listen to these nerdy podcasts. <laughs> and so I'm sure a number of them will be interested in checking it out. Um, uh, without opening too big a can of worms, what is the difference, if anything? What are your thoughts on uh, the phraseology or the reality of meditation versus mindfulness in our world at present? Yeah, that's a good question. So in 
a number of my previous writings, I've written about mindfulness and meditation and whatnot. Um, and I've made all sorts of claims in my writings about these things. And I'm aware that in various different traditions, whether it's in Hindu traditions or Buddhist traditions or Taoist traditions, traditions, you know, or even Western theological or mystical traditions, that these terms are used in multiple ways, many of which overlap and many of which don't. And this can be problematic. Um, so, you know, I have an article called Meditation in an Encyclopedia that just came out. It's called the Palgrave Encyclopedia of the Possible. Um, get the title right, where I try to go through all these differences. Um, but like I've had Buddhists, for example, or Hindus or whoever, you know, um, argue with me that uh, when I, I, I will frequently say, here's what I'm using the term to mean in this article or in this context or in this chapter. And I'll get this kind of objection. You know, that's not exactly entirely right within our tradition. It's the heart mind. It's not just the mind. It's this, it's that. And it's like, yeah, fine. I, I know about all these differences, but my writing is geared toward the motivations that I've expressed already with you, which are to try to just bring recognition and understanding to the topic in general and, and certain things that I think are useful for people to absorb. So I try to gloss over the differences. There are multiple techniques, even within one tradition, like let's just say Theravada Buddhism, you'll have different lineages and different teachers who will say the foundation of mindfulness, there are the four foundations of mindfulness, and you need to start with the body, mindfulness of the body, and focus on Vedana, feelings in your body, and go through a body sweep. And the, But another teacher will say, no, 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 it's Anapanasati, you have to start with mindfulness of the breath. Um, you know, and, and, and beginners have to start here and there's a, a map of progression and all that. And there's all these differences of interpretation. And I say, okay, fine. You know, if somebody wants to join a tradition with that kind of teacher, that's what they should do. Um, to me, it's like kind of, I, I like to make this analogy. If you want to be a good boxer, it's good to have a boxing coach, but there's all different kinds of boxing coaches and there's all different kinds of martial arts. Right. So and every single one of them kind of acts like they're branding their own method is the right one. And like, I just try to gloss on like I, I'm not interested in that. Um, but I can still speak about some general differences. Take the seventh and the eighth steps in the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Right. And compare those with the last few steps in the eight limbs of yoga in Ashtanga yoga. Right. And they kind of overlap in some ways. They're alike in some ways. Is samadhi the same in both? Not exactly. You know, all that stuff needs to be mapped out. It's good to have really clear taxonomy and everything. And that's like, to me, that's a project that I want to engage in in my next book. Let's <laughs> try to sort all that out. Right. But just take like mindfulness and one pointedness, for example, the seventh and eighth stages of the Buddhist Eightfold Path. Within all the different kinds of Buddhism, there's different understandings of what even one of those things mean, like just mindfulness, right? So in some traditions, it's mindfulness of the breath, right? But in, in other traditions, mindfulness of the breath is focusing on one thing, so it's kind of one-pointedness, 
right? And in, in, you know, in some traditions, mindfulness is um, just a kind of open monitoring, right? Or bare attention. And there's all these different terms floating around, like in the mindfulness-based stress reduction world, mindfulness means one thing. On various mindfulness apps, it means something else. Uh, you know, and, 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 and people in this space will be debating with each other about what these things mean. To me, I try to look at what's the functional similarities and differences. So just take, take these two models, right? Mindfulness of one particular thing, like the breath or bodily sensations or an image in your mind or a mantra or any one thing that you choose to focus narrowly on. And I like to say you are in some sense zooming in and it's narrow focus. And the technique is you try, you intend to focus narrowly. And when your mind wanders, you notice it when you can. You recognize that your mind has wandered and you bring it back, right? And that wandering, realizing, and re you know, remembering and returning, sati, mindfulness also means remembering, right? So you, that's what you do. And that this focusing, losing focus, remembering, and refocusing, that's the practice, right? But in the other one, like this kind of um, targetless or choiceless awareness or open monitoring or witnessing or whatever you want to call it, I look at that as a kind of broad focus, so instead of selective attention, which picks out one element within the stream of consciousness, right? You're focusing on the entire stream, let's just say. Watching the stream flow or just allowing awareness to rest in the natural state, depending on what tradition it comes out of, how that's being described. That's like broad focus. So that's like um, taking in the entire field of consciousness and just paying attention to the whole thing. When you're doing that, you'll lose that level of focus and your mind will pick on some selective item that's passing through awareness. You'll get caught up in it and then you'll remember to refocus to the broad scale, right? Zoom out as opposed to zoom in. So just take that. You've got zoom in and zoom out and different traditions will call one of them one-pointedness and the other one mindfulness, but some traditions will call both of them mindfulness and some will say, you can't separate the one from the other. And like, so these are all like really interesting debates. They're kind of important to be clear on what you mean when you say these words, right? But, you know, so there's a, there's a lot going on. And I'll say one, just one, I can go on about this for hours. But one more thing I'll say about it is that there's an important distinction to be made between practices and states. So when you are on a path, you engage in certain kinds of practices, whether it's one-pointedness or broad monitoring or whatever it is, you practice training your attention in some way. That's like uh, an athlete who has a daily workout ritual. So many push-ups, jogging, jumping jacks, whatever, right? This is the work that they're putting into their practice, like piano drills when you're learning the piano right? But as anybody who's practiced for any length of time knows, those things make you prone to entering into meditative states. And when you enter into a meditative state, you're not necessarily doing the practice anymore. You've been taken up. Uh, Krishnamurti, one of my favorite meditation teachers says, meditation isn't something that you do. It's something that happens to you, right? 
Um, I think Trungpa Rinpoche might have been the one, this Tibetan um, meditation master, who made this analogy that entering into a meditative state or having a mystical experience is something that it's like an accident. It just happens. But the more you practice, the more accident prone you become. Right? And I had another Zen teacher, I forget his name, who compared meditative practices to training wheels on a bicycle. You know, you use the training wheels on the bike. So when you're a kid, you don't fall. You know, the, it only goes this far and that far. And you try to get it to the point where you, it's not touching one of the training wheels on the ground. Right. And so you kind of learn how to do it. But you need the training wheels to help you get there. But once you get there, once you know how to ride the bike, you don't need the training wheels. And then there's some teachers who like the instant enlightenment method versus the gradual one. The folks who favor the instant enlightenment method typically had practices that they forgot about that made them prone to their enlightenment experience. This was a debate between um, uh, Osho, Bhagwan Rajneesh, and uh, the founder of TM, Transcendental Meditation, was uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Years ago, they were debating about this, and Maharishi says to uh, Bhagwan, you guys... Uh, are all the same. You know, you get to a state where it's just happening to you and then you think you don't need the method anymore, right? You know, same thing with Krishnamurti. He taught choiceless awareness. It's something that happens, not something that you do. But he spent 20 years growing up with all those disciplines when he was being groomed to become, uh, you know, an icon. The, the world teacher. <laughs> the world teacher for the theosophical, the order of the star and all that stuff. Yeah, so I guess that's about what I'll say about answering that question for you. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Um, there's uh, one more tantalizing tension here that I, I, I feel I'd like to touch on before we close. Um, given that you are uh, adept at both scholarship and analytic philosophy in, in particularly, and you're also adept at the experiential, could you say a quick word, and this could be an hour-long conversation, to be sure, but could you say a quick word about whether or not there's a tension between these two modalities, whether they're mutually uh, beneficial in some sense, whether uh, scholars of um, meditation or religion or spirituality should be experiencers or shouldn't be, or you know, could you say a word about this sort of dual citizenship, if you will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at a conference recently in Vancouver on Buddhist ethics where Jay Garfield was one of the um, keynote speakers. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, he's a scholar. Indeed. Yeah, Buddhism. And he's also an analytic philosopher. And um, I was arguing that we need to let the world know that you can be both a scholar and a practitioner. And he was arguing against that. And I think, he, well, he's older than me. And he came out of a tradition where if you were in religious studies, for example, and you admitted that you were a person of faith, that this cast doubt upon your ability to be objective, right? And so he was arguing that we should keep these things very separate, right? But I disagree. Um, you know, both of these two, in my own personal life, you know, my meditative mystical experiences are what led me to philosophy to better understand them. But philosophical, my analytic philosophical training, which is largely biased by kind of physicalist, reductionist, you know, assumptions about meta metaphysics, right? And like logical empiricism, Occam's razor, all these critical ways of like 
meditative experiences, they just don't stand up well under like standard, that kind of analysis. So my training in philosophy led me to doubt what I previously considered to be totally Gnostic, undoubtable experiences. Like I had a kind of inside knowledge that I, you know, from my mystical experiences and my analytic mind. So I have this kind of schizophrenic battle going on in my entire life, trying to sort these things out. Um, you know, faith without critical thinking isn't wise. Uh, I think Buddha even suggested something along those lines. Don't believe it just because I said it, right? So, I mean, while there's certainly a value in scholars studying this objectively who don't participate, right? Then there's also a value in practitioners who just leave the scholarship aside because of, you know, virtuosity. You want scholarly virtuosos and you want practitioner virtuosos having somebody do both that's harder than either one alone right but particularly because there is a tension between the two which i've been kind of waffling with my you know throughout my entire life um i remember having a teacher when i was an undergrad in an ethics class and we had just we were going through all these ethical theories and one was the religious theory of ethics you know x is moral because god says so this is the divine command theory of ethics. And I remember the professor said, after we critiqued that theory, that it, you know, it doesn't stand up to logical analysis, teacher said, it was a small class. How many of you think philosophy undermines faith? And everybody's hand went up except mine. And I remember that's because I had had all these experiences. I have very strong faith in something. I don't know what the metaphysics is, but something other than just this reductive physicalist model, I think something is real. And, uh, but over the years, the more that I did the training in philosophy, the more I've really like, my uncertainty about the metaphysics just gets greater and greater as the years go by, right? But yet I still feel like I'm inoculated against this kind of dismissive attitude. I think that there's something quite deep and valid about these kinds of experiences and we need to explore them both experientially and analytically and scientifically on every level that's a large part of what this handbook is 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 you know promoting <laughs> i don't know brilliant if I your question well, my questions are always meant to be generative uh, <laughs> but uh, yes absolutely absolutely thank you for engaging that tension um it's it's one where you know as i hear you speak um one wonders whether the word experience might be um received differently than the word faith because faith often has particular uh, connotations, uh, religious connotations, and and um, uh, the, the experience is different in that you've had an experience versus you know I believe in something without any reason to believe in it, and so there's that tension. It's taken me the better part of 25 years of um, intellectual and spiritual training, uh, post secondary to. Um, finally be forthcoming with all these different aspects of my being and my training. Um, I opened an online school that gives wisdom teachings. It's two years old. I've been teaching online for about seven years. But the wisdom teachings aren't bereft of knowledge of empirical reality and history and philosophy and sociology and, and interpreting the power of an ancient Indian myth is not going to be blind to the um, the, the, the particular, perhaps uh, patriarchal or misogynistic overtones in certain, you know, myths, etc., etc., etc. And so, it's taken me quite some time. My two favorite analogies are food and music. Whatever analogy 
resonates with people. And let's use the music analogy. There are those who are musicians. They have rhythm and pitch. They get rhythm and pitch. When they hear a musical composition, they feel it in their being. They dance, whether they're moving or not. They're connected to it. Uh, Some perform. And performance is a state that when you are performing, it's abundantly clear that it's a transpersonal state. If you're in the flow while you're performing. Um, And yet there are those who are music historians or, or sociologists yeah, who, historians versus right? Artists. Who 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 wish to? It's important to understand. You know, I I I love Mozart not because I have an allegiance to Vienna or or high culture or the West or Europe. Mozart was a rishi who channeled ideas through music. For example, of course, knowledge of Vienna, of course, knowledge of the symphonic form, of course, knowledge of um. I guess in his case, it would be like Bach and and Beethoven, what came before and after. Uh, uh, you know, Haydn, you know, of course, that's going to enrich one's understanding of the empirical reality that created and that conditioned uh, who Mozart was as a person and his enterprise and his enterprise. One can be expert in that and tone deaf. And one could be able to channel Mozart's vision in flesh centuries post his death and, and not be able to cite a year or have any intellectual understanding of, 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 of symphonic form, for example. They're not mutually exclusive. They're different aspects of being. They can be mutually uh, supportive, I feel, um, provided we, you know, critical thinking is what safeguards us from dogma and delusion. Exactly. It's crucial. It's imperative. And yet, you know, be a nutritionist, that's fine. But do you know what vanilla tastes like? Do you know what chocolate tastes like? Do you have any idea? And let's just say you don't. Fine. Don't assume that everyone saying, mmm, is crazy. Very good, Raj. That was beautifully well said. Um, Let me add to it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, there's a philosopher named Frank Jackson who was arguing against reductive physicalism, that mind is just brain. And he came up with a brilliant thought experiment about Mary, the colorblind neuroscientist who specializes in visual perception, who knows everything that there is to know about how our eyes and the electromagnetic frequencies and our optic nerves, the visual cortex, how all of that stuff correlates with this color perception and that color perception, but she's never seen colors before. And then Frank says, Imagine we operate on her, and now she can see color. Has anything new happened for her? And he thinks clearly the intuitive answer is yes. Now, but reductive physicalism would say no, because color perception and things like that is just like, um, what is the word? Epiphenomenal. What's going on is brain processes, and that's all that matters. And so, yeah, whether or not she's got the qualia, the, the actual sensations, that's irrelevant from the physicalist point of view. But Frank Jackson's thought experiment makes that, that, that argument seem absurd. Yeah. Purely seeing the difference between the black and white and the color painting behind me is something that enriches Mary's life in a way that is really meaningful and important. I make a similar analogy in this book, in my introduction, that someone who has or has not had a meditative experience is a similar difference. <laughs> so you could be a kind of um, 
skeptic about meaning, about the meaning of meditation and how it might be spiritually enriching and all that. You could have all the arguments in the world, but if you have a real, genuine, meditative, mystical experience, it's like Mary seeing color. Um, and that's not very strong of an argument, but for anybody who's had the experience, it's intuitive. That's one thing I want to say. And then the other thing, if we still have another minute, um, sure. one chapter I'd love to point out after what you were just talking about, which is by this cognitive scientist and philosopher named John Verveke. It's chapter 12, and it's entitled, How a Philosophy of Meditation Can Explore the Deep Connections Between Mindfulness and Contemplative Wisdom. And John Verveke makes this distinction between what he calls the four Ps, propositional knowing, which is knowing that something is the case, like two plus two is four, or, you know, Caesar crossed the Rubicon, or whatever these, you know, Mozart, et cetera, these fact statements, propositions, things that can be true or false. That's the first P of knowing. But then there's procedural knowing, which is knowing how, like knowing how to play a symphony, right, or knowing how to listen to music. Um, so that's procedural knowledge, procedures, how to, every kind of skill is different. And when you enter into flow states, right, that's some different kind of procedure that you're in. You're, you're in a, a spontaneous, optimal grip with reality and your agency. There's an agency arena synchronization that's kind of tacit, not through cold cognition, but through the hot system and all that. So the procedural knowledge which we devalue, like all those critics that this book was addressed to are stuck in the propositional mode of knowing, right? Um, so procedural. And then the third is um, par uh, participatory. So by engaging in various different activities like yoga and meditation or music making or singing and dancing or taking psilocybin or whatever it is, uh, you could have altered states of consciousness that give you different kinds of knowing and then finally, the, the fourth P is um, perspectival knowing. So, and your perspective shifts when you engage different procedures or participate in different kinds of activities, you open up new perspectives. And meditation particularly enables transframing, reframing, breaking frames, you know, stepping out of a paradigm and seeing the world anew. So you've got propositional, procedural, um, participatory, and perspectival forms of knowing, meditation and other contemplative and related spiritual disciplines cultivate the other three kinds of knowing. Those are alternative, like you know what you said. You, you know experientially that there's a value to these practices. If somebody doesn't have the experience, they never participate in it. They, they can't gain that perspective. This book is largely written in propositional form to try to redirect people in a way to the other three kinds of knowing. And there may be other kinds of knowing as well. So I just wanted to plug that. That was one of my favorite chapters in the book. Um, but Beautiful. It kind of triggered by what you were saying about Mozart. And whatnot. Well, that's, that's a great sort of frame um, for, you know, the scholarly enterprise, particularly in this book where, where you, you're speaking the language of uh, scholarship to uh, make sense of and point to what can't be contained by the language of scholarship and so brilliant so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today it was great to be here raj and great to finally meet you in person uh in person 
<laughs> in on Zoom in person. Yes, yes. Well, thank you very much. For those of you listening, we have been speaking um, uh, with Dr. Rick Rapetti, uh, who is the editor of this fascinating new Rutledge handbook on the philosophy of meditation. Uh, check it out. Uh, the link is in the podcast notes. Until next time, um, keep well, keep listening. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Raj Balkaran for the podcast. Um, uh, keep uh, either studying meditation or meditating or both. Take care. <laughs>